And the fellows have some Bibles. They're going to make their way down the aisle for you to get their attention if you need a copy of the Scriptures to follow along as we look at Hebrews 2 together. Just put your hand up. They'll get one to you. And that Bible is marked at Hebrews 2, so you can find it easily. Those of us who are over 40 years old here grew up watching Walter Cronkite deliver the CBS Evening News. Those of you that are under 40 may have at least heard of him in that it was big news when he passed away just a couple of months ago in July. But Cronkite would always end his newscast the same way, with his trademark sign-off, and that's the way it is. And he would say this at the end of a broadcast in which he had described wars and riots and assassinations and all manner of calamity. It was mostly national and international news that affected large numbers of people. And the news, the headlines, was then, as it is today, mostly bad. And I think most would agree that that's truly the way it is. Very bad very dangerous, very ugly. But the statement, and that's the way it is, is really just a statement of fact. It doesn't make any evaluation or comparison or judgment. But we all make the evaluation. We all make the judgment. That's not just the way it is. But we also think to ourselves, every person, not only is that the way it is, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. Not only is it not the way it's supposed to be at the national and the societal level, it's not the way, we all know, it's not the way it should be in our towns and on our streets and in our own homes. And the truth is, in our own hearts, the way it is is not the way it's supposed to be, neither in our collective world nor in our private world worlds. That nagging sense that something is askew, something's just not right, something is definitely wrong. That sense we all have that it was supposed to be different is taught explicitly in the pages of Scripture, in God's Word, the Bible. You know that it begins the way it's supposed to be, but then it tells us how quickly it went bad how quickly it became dangerous, how quickly it got ugly. If you read the Bible rightly, you must always have an eye on those opening chapters that tell us how it was supposed to be and how it went south very quickly. And if you do, as you then read of the wars and the riots and the murders and the assassinations in the Bible, and you do, you're constantly then saying to yourself, I know what it's supposed to be like. And yet, in the title of our message, that's not the way it is. And God wants you and me to long for a restoration. A restoration of our world, a restoration of society, a restoration of our homes, a restoration of our hearts. Because you see, friends, we live between two paradises that are mentioned in the Bible. The Bible describes a garden at the front end. 
And it describes a city at the other end. The garden paradise became a paradise lost. And the paradise of the heavenly city is paradise restored. And we live in between. Where God is calling men and women out of the world and to himself. And he's restoring people one person at a time. And the Bible teaches there will come a time where he will make all things new. And that should beat within the hearts of every person. Particularly within the hearts of those who have come to know him. And all the more starkly see the difference between the way it is and the way it should be. We live in between. Knowing that what we are now is not what we were made to be. And that the world is not as it was intended to be. And many people, not those of us who have come to Christ, I trust, but many people do wonder, can it ever be restored? Now, the five amazing verses that we're going to consider from Hebrews chapter 2 today, believe it or not, deal with all of that stuff in just five verses. I have an outline for you that I encourage you to follow along as we look at these five verses from Hebrews chapter 2. They tell us, first of all, that we were made for great things. Verse number 5 of Hebrews 2. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man? That you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. And you put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. If you understand that passage rightly, it's an amazing, absolutely amazing passage indeed with regard to what God has to say about the crowning achievement of his original creation, humanity. Because all of what I just read is all talking about human beings and what they were intended to be. And it's contrasted with angels. Starts out in verse 5, it's saying it's not to angels that he subjected the world. Then goes on to talk about the fact that God has designed to subject the world to the rule of his crowning achievement in creation, humanity. Now, why does he mention in verse 5, it's not to angels? Well, it's because, if you remember when we looked at chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews, in chapter 1, there is this marvelous description of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse number 3, that he is the exact representation of his being. He is the heir of all things. He is the brightness of his glory, that he has come to purge our sins, and he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. But then the writer of Hebrews goes on to talk about angels. Why does he talk about angels? Because one of the burdens of the writer of the book of Hebrews is to show throughout the book that Jesus Christ is superior to anyone and anything that has come before or will ever come after. And so you have various sections throughout the book of Hebrews showing that Jesus is superior, first of all, to angels. We're going to see that Jesus is superior to the prophets, prophets like Moses who have come before. 
that Jesus is superior to the Levitical priesthood described in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, that Jesus is superior to the sacrificial system that's described in the first part of your Bible. Jesus is better, superior to all of these things, and he begins with angels. Because one might reasonably ask, perhaps God might entrust to angels the rulership over his world. The writer of Hebrews wants to make sure we make no such mistake. It is to man that he has subjected all things, not even to angels. Now, why might one think that angels would be God's appointed representatives to rule his world? Well, because throughout Scripture, angels are mentioned as transacting for God in this world and in the next, and you remember Jacob had a dream, and in Jacob's dream, he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. As you find descriptions of angels throughout scriptures, you find that apparently there's a, a hierarchy, a kind of chain of command, and they carry out God's work in his world on his behalf. And so one might reasonably say, isn't it angels who are going to rule God's world on his behalf. And the writer says, no, not even angels. It is still the case and has always been God's intention for man to rule his world. And that's why verse 5 really begins in Greek. You don't see it in the NIV, but it begins with the word for. For it is not to angels. And at the end of verse number 5, it says, about which we are speaking. Because the writer has taken a little bit of a parenthesis, a little interlude. Chapter 1 started talking about the superiority of Jesus to angels, but then when you get to the beginning of chapter 2 that we saw last week, the first four verses implore us not to ignore, not to neglect, not to drift from the anchor that is Christ, the great salvation that he's supplied for us. But now he returns to the original argument. Started back in chapter 1. Christ is superior to angels. And in the midst of that argument, carried out through chapter 2, says, And man, God's crowning achievement in creation, was and still is assigned to rule for God with all things subjected to him, man, in God's world, not to angels. And so human, humanity is not inferior to angels in the least. As a matter of fact, when God created the first man and the first woman, they were created to be the king and queen of God's creation. Adam and Eve were to rule for God and rule for him in a way that brought glory to God and satisfaction to the creature. As we're going to see, had they obeyed God, we would have then been now ruling as God's kings and queens over his over his world this passage that's alluded to beginning in verse 6 to prove the point that it's man not angels or to anyone else that god has appointed as his ruler over his world is from psalm number eight in the first part of your bible in the middle of verse 6 when it says there is a place where someone has testified what is man you're mindful of him son of man that you care for him it's a quotation from psalm number eight We're going to consider that in just a moment. 
let me just deal with this first phrase at the beginning of verse 6. There's a place where somebody has testified. And then he quotes the Bible. You might read that and you say, that's kind of a flippant way to quote the Bible. Somebody said somewhere. I think I remember somebody saying, it sort of sounds like, doesn't it? And it does come off that way, but you need to understand that in no way is the writer of Hebrews being flippant in his quotation of Scripture. One, he quotes Scripture accurately. Secondly, as you read through the book of Hebrews, it becomes very, very clear that the writer knows his Bible very well. He knows the content and he knows who wrote it. But the reason that throughout the book of Hebrews you do not find the human authors named, not once, 38 times the Old Testament is alluded to or quoted in the book of Hebrews, and not once do you have the human author named. Some of you may remember that when we started our study of this book, I mentioned that the burden of the writer is to show that all of this, the great plan of salvation for which Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God the Son, having come as man to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, that grand plan is emanates from, is sourced in, and is for the purpose of glory to God and God alone. And so he doesn't want his own name mentioned. And I believe that's the reason he doesn't tell us who he is. I keep saying the author of Hebrews, you ever notice that? Because the truth is we don't know for sure who wrote it. He doesn't name himself and he doesn't name the other human authors because the one who is speaking in this book and the one who speaks throughout the book is none other than God himself. And you may remember that he starts in chapter 1 in verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by whom? Spoken to us by his son. So the focus needs to be upon God. The one whose plan is unfolding and is unfolded in this book. When he says there's a place where someone has said, he knows full well where it is. And he knows who said it. But he wants us to focus on God as the ultimate author of these words. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You made him, verse 7, a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, and you put everything under his feet. Now, the context of that quotation is this. I have it for you on the screen. Many of you are familiar with these marvelous words. Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? That you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him. So the psalmist says, when I consider... The greatness of God, that greatness displayed in the glory of his creation. I have to ask myself, why would you make us as you have puny us apart from you? Absolutely nothing completely dependent on you. And yet the psalmist goes on to say you are mindful of us. You care for us. And then the portion that the writer of Hebrews takes, you made him a little lower than the angels. Not inferior to the angels, spiritually, we're confined, constricted to one place in a body for now. And so you made him a little lower than the angels, but you made him above the rest of creation. 
the writer of Hebrews is saying, as the psalmist has said. And you focus your fatherly care upon this frail, otherwise frail creature that you have made. And according to chapter 2, you made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything under his feet. Now, friends, just pause for a few moments then to consider the uniqueness, the splendor that is humanity, the crowning achievement of God's creation. And as I describe that, both in its position and its uniqueness and its, its purpose in just a moment, perhaps some of you are saying, is that passage really talking about mankind in general? I thought it was talking about Jesus. I thought when it said, the Son of Man, and that you put everything under his feet, that it's talking about, about Jesus Christ. Well, it's understandable that one would come away with that interpretation, but it does happen to be wrong. And let me tell you why. Psalm number 8. I have it for you on the screen again. What is man that you are mindful of him, the Son of Man that you care for him? In Hebrew poetry, which is what the Psalms are, they do something called parallelism. And the phrase, the Son of Man, is not being used as it is in the New Testament when Jesus comes and calls himself the Son of Man. But it's being used in parallel with the first phrase, man, you are mindful of man, and then the Son of Man, parallel to that, just another phrase for the same thing. As a matter of fact, very often in Scripture, when that phrase son of is used it simply means possessing the characteristics of someone or something and so why are you mindful why do you care for man those that have the characteristics of humanity and you've subjected everything to him put everything under his man's feet and so just think with me for a few moments about the beauty of this crowning achievement of God's creation Humanity. Think about humanity in their position. Just a little lower than the angels, but Adam and Eve as the king and queen of God's creation. Given instructions by him to rule it for him. God has called us to great things in making us unique in our position, but also uniquely making us the rulers of his creation. Psalm number 8 makes that clear. The writer of Hebrews makes that clear. And it's simply saying what the Bible says in its opening chapter. You all remember, God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let us rule, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. The Bible says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And then God said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The crowning achievement of God's creation, humanity, designed in the very first chapter of the Bible to rule on his behalf as his vice regent in running his world, is given these blessed instructions. And he gives us a purpose. No other, 
No other creature is given this mandate, only man. And he gives us this purpose, subdue the earth, fill it. I want you to rule it. I want you to run it for my glory, says God. You know, friends, as you think about the uniqueness of man and how he's constituted in his position in the purpose that God has given him, consider four ways in which he is different from the rest of creation. It is only humanity that can say these four things. Only human beings can say, I am. And I can. And I ought. And I will. I am. I can. I ought. I will. Think about that. Think about your cherished pet. Fido can't do any of those things. Fido does not have the first of those. Self-awareness. I am. A self-awareness that I am here, that I am a creature of the Creator, that I was made to interact with Him. I am. A self-awareness, a God-awareness that we were made to have. No other creature has it. I am. I can. God has given us unique abilities to carry out the things that He has assigned to us. So fill the earth and subdue the earth. A creative ability to use what he has given for the purpose for which he gave it. He has given to man a moral sense. I ought. I ought do this. I ought not do that. God has instilled a conscience in every creature. A sense of his awareness of himself in the presence of God and the things he should do and things he should not do. And then the Capacity of volition, I will. I will carry out then these particular plans. And we were designed to carry out the plans that we ought to carry out. But as we will see, sin causes us to carry out our own plans rather than God. I am, I can, I ought, I will. Unique to humanity. We were made for great things. That's what I say in your outline. The Bible absolutely teaches humanity was made for greatness. Made to rule God's world on his behalf. And you see it in some of the things people try to pursue to find that greatness. That sense of, one author called it, transcendence. That brings us above and beyond the mundane and the here and now. So you hear it in the Miss America contestant. You know the Miss America contestant who's asked... If you were to win, what, how would you want to use your reign to better the world? And now it's become a joke. She wants to solve world hunger. She wants to create world peace. She wants to free all the caged parakeets in the world. And we laugh. But you know, she's sort of onto something. Because we really were made for great things. We really were made for big things. And one of the reasons we don't think in big terms and in great terms is because sin causes us to reduce the size of our purpose to the size of our lives. And so we have a small view, a tiny view, a narrow view of what we're to be about. 
But people still have the lingering image of God, not completely obliterated. And they know that they were made for something more. They were made for something great. But unfortunately, we settle for things that are too small. And that's what I say secondly in your outline. We were made for greatness, for great things. But too often we settle for small things. Friends, you and I were created for more than filling up our schedules with self-satisfying pursuits of personal pleasure. We were meant to do more than make sure that all of our needs are fulfilled and all of our desires are satisfied. We were never meant to be self-focused little kings ruling minuscule little kingdoms that have a population of one. And yet that's the way so many of us live. And it's a tragedy of immense proportions. We were made for great things, but we give ourselves and settle for small things. And you see that tragedy expressed at the end of verse 8. Yet at present, We do not see everything subject to him. (laughs) That's one of the great understatements in the entire Bible. Yet at present, man is not fulfilling the purpose for which God made him. At present, we do not see all things subjected to humanity, ruling for God as God intended him to rule on God's behalf as his vice regent in his world. In just one sentence, the writer of Hebrews encompasses sin and its effects. Yet in the present, we do not see all things subject to him. And as a result, rather than living for the great things for which God created us, we live for the small things that so easily allure us. One writer describes an encounter he had with a counselee, a man named, that he names Jim. Bear with me as I read for you. He says, Jim sat before me, his slumped body a testament to the depression that gripped him. He said he had awakened a few months earlier and realized that there was no one who cared if he woke up that morning. No one cared if he was healthy or sick. No one cared if he was happy or sad. He said, I get up in the morning and I put on great looking clothes, leave my beautiful modern condominium, get in my luxury car, drive to my high paying job, only to go back to my beautiful condominium at the end of the day to start it all over again. I could die today and no one would even notice. I have it all. Why can't I be happy? And he goes on to say Jim did have it all. Yet in, the, in getting it all, he had denied his own humanity. In his quest for everything, Jim had missed the one thing that separated him from everything else that God made. Jim had constructed his own kingdom, indulged his every dream, met his every need. He had ruled his kingdom with discipline and success, but he discovered that it was an empty kingdom and he was an empty king. It was not that Jim had attempted too much. The tragedy was that he had settled For way too little. And that's exactly what he got. We look at people and we say he or she has got it. And we define it that way. And God says, I made you for much greater things than that. And you settle for much, much too little. 
Here's what sin does, friends. I was telling my class on Tuesday night as we were concluding our summer-long series on how to help others change. I was telling them that sin tends to move us toward what one author calls now-ism. Instead of seeing, remembering what we were made to be and looking forward to a future time, not the words of the end of verse 8 at the present time, not getting immersed in the present, in the now, but understanding what we were made to be and looking forward to what we will be, we pursue our lives differently. We march to the beat of a different drummer. We have a totally different set of values. It is not the beck and call of the siren sound of the world that captures our attention. It's people who are looking forward to a city whose builder and maker is God. We've settled for small things. And you see it in our now-ism. And I told the group on Tuesday, it has many consequences when you live only in the now, forgetting what you were made to be, forgetting what you will be, and then pursuing that purpose in the here and now. It has many consequences. Now-ism. Depression. I told them depression can be thought of as self-absorbed now-ism. Only focused on what's going on now. Or anger can be thought of as self-righteous now-ism. I should have better. I don't have as much as I deserve. I'm angry with you for not providing. I'm angry with my boss for not giving me more. I'm ultimately angry with God for not supplying what I deserve to have. Self-righteous now-ism. Fear and anxiety are really just obsessions, friend, with the here and the now. The writer of Hebrews reminds us you were made for great things. But we too often settle for small things. So what's the remedy then? The end of verse 8, yet at the present we do not see all things subject to him, man, humanity, as they were designed to be. We do not see man ruling for God as he was intended to rule. And so he pursues his smallness and his own little kingdom rather than my kingdom and its righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. So what's the solution to all of that? Well, thanks be to God. In verse number nine, we're given the solution. Notice verse nine. But we see Jesus. The end of verse 8, we do not see everything subject to him. So what do we see? Better, who do we see? We see Jesus. Because of the sin problem, because of sin luring us to nowism, to live small lives rather than the great lives to which God has called us, now we must have one who can free us from the slavery to our narrow vision of our purpose. And that one is none other and only Jesus. We see Jesus. And notice what he says about Jesus. He was made 
a little lower than the angels. Same phrase used in verse 7 of humanity. Jesus was made this way when he became man at his incarnation. He was made human. And he is now crowned, notice, with glory and honor. Notice verse 7. You made him, that is humanity, a little lower than the angels. And now Jesus has taken on humanity just like us. And you crowned him with glory and honor. That is humanity in general. Your original intention was to crown him with glory and honor. Great things to rule for you on this earth. Yet at the present, because of sin, we do not see it. But we see Jesus. Who? Though being God, fully God, is fully human and was crowned with glory and honor. Hear this, friends. Jesus is what we were designed to be. Jesus is what you were made to be. And you will never become what you were made to be until you are related to Jesus. And so the writer makes that point in verse 9. And then in verse 10, as we will see next week, he says, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting. And goes on to talk about the fact that this one Jesus now, who has been made fully human, this one Jesus who has been crowned with glory and honor, is the one alone who can restore us to the greatness, the uniqueness, the authority to which God originally called us. Only by being related to Jesus. Now how do I get related to Jesus? What did Jesus do that causes me now to be restored to the calling that God originally had for me and us? I want you to notice this word in verse 9. We see Jesus made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, and then notice this, because. Here's why. The reason that we look to Jesus, the reason that Jesus is the only way for us to be restored to the greatness to which we were called, the reason is because he suffered death. Now, I know it's early in the morning, and I know I've been yapping for a while. I'm almost done. But friends, this is very important. Think with me. Just think about that sentence, the way it's constructed. He's crowned with glory and honor Here's why. Because he suffered. How does his suffering become the cause, the reason for his crowning with glory and honor? And here's the answer. Because Jesus, the second Adam, the last Adam, obeyed where the first Adam disobeyed. Adam was made to be this. Adam was made to do this. You were made to be crowned with honor and glory and to rule for God. You were made for that. But because of disobedience in the garden, God in his mercy and grace has sent the last Adam. And he has obeyed. And he obeyed by going to the cross. 
And because he obeyed, as seen in the fact that he suffered and died on the cross, now he, as representative of what humanity was intended to be, now because of him, we too, if related to him, can be crowned with the glory and honor that we were designed for. That's why the Bible says this. Through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. But through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And famously, Jesus, being in very nature God, made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, he humbled himself. And he became, notice, obedient to death, even death on a cross. And don't miss this word, therefore, because he obeyed. Because he obeyed where Adam disobeyed, he has now achieved the purpose for which man was originally designed. And it's only in Jesus that you can become then what were you, you were designed to be. We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. Christian friend, I want to encourage you. As you read your Bible, and I assume you read your Bible, but as you read your Bible, think about what you were made to be. Always with an eye toward the beginning, what it was supposed to be. Think about what it will be in the future. And focus your attention upon Jesus, the central figure in the entire word of God and the story of redemption. Because he is the one who alone can restore you and me to what we were intended to be. And as you do that, Think about what you were intended to be. Think about what you are. Think about what's important to you. Think about whose kingdom you are pursuing right now. What do you use your time and your resources, your talent, and your treasure to pursue? The 11.15 hour, we're going to have a brother, Bill Bork, a brother, Bill Bork. He's going to present his experiences visiting our missionary, Daniel Kumar, in India. And I mention that for this reason, at the risk of embarrassing Bill and Gloria and his family. Bill is not a full-time missionary. Bill's an accountant by trade, works a full-time job, has a family. He and his family plan some of their vacations and save their money so that they can go on the mission field to carry on the Lord's work. And I say that for this reason. There's somebody who knows what's important. There's someone who knows what we were really made for. And compare that, and I, and I include myself in this, friends, compare that to the puny visions that we have for ourselves and the very small things to which we give ourselves. And when we bow in just a moment, we need to ask God, Oh, Lord God, forgive us. We know we have fallen short of the original purpose for which you have made us because we struggle with sin. But Lord, too often we've given in to the sin and its narrow vision of what we're to be. And if you're here and you've never been related to Jesus, friend, I'm telling you, the only way to be restored to the purpose for which you were made is through the one absolutely perfect representative of what humanity was designed to be, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do you do that? Realize that you've sinned. You've pursued your own agenda rather than God's. Recognize that Jesus suffered. He obeyed. 
and he suffered to pay the penalty for your sin, repent of your sin. Lord, I'm going to follow your agenda, no, lo- no longer following mine, and receive Jesus Christ into your life. When we bow and pray in just a moment, you pray from your heart to God. It's not a formula. It's just a sample prayer. You cry out to God, Oh, Lord, I have sinned. Jesus died for my sin. I ask you to rescue me from myself and rescue me from your wrath because of my sin. Let's bow. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word and be reminded and convicted. To be reminded of what we were intended to be. To be reminded of what has gone wrong because of the entrance of sin into your otherwise good and glorious world. To be reminded of your mercy and grace in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who has come to restore what has gone wrong because of the entrance of sin. Thank you, Lord, for your work of redemption. The ongoing work of making right what has gone wrong. In individual lives and then in the consequences, the very good consequences that occur in those restored lives, for those around them, those in their sphere of influence. Lord, help each of us to reevaluate what we live for, the puny purposes for which, to which we give ourselves. Help us to be convicted, Lord God, can confess, repent, and to cast our vision upon a great God who has called us to great things, even in the here and now, and look forward to the heavenly city that will one day restore all things to be as they were intended. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who has not come to the one who alone can restore them to what they were intended to be, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's been given crowned with glory and honor because he obeyed. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for your obedience. And thank you, our God, for your mercy in applying the obedience of the Lord Jesus to us when we come to him. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.